Hi, this is Chuck Muller, author of The Rise of the Agile Leader, Can You Make the Shift? And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Join me today on episode 406 is Chuck Muller. Chuck Muller is a CEO, executive coach, and author who founded MCG Partners in 2007. He brings 30 years experience working internationally with, with business executives and leadership teams, helping optimize both business and individual talent. Chuck is a graduate of programs of the Harvard Business School, the Sloan School of Management, and the Wharton School of Business. He earned a BA in political science and a minor in business administration at Merrimack College. He is PI certified as a talent optimization consultant and for the predictive index behavior assessment. He's a member of the Ford's Coaches Council and a former Harvard Business School executive coach providing coaching and advisory services to global executives. Chuck is also a cranberry grower for Ocean Spray and a fundraiser for cancer research through the Pan Mass Challenge. Chuck is based in Greater Boston, Massachusetts, and is here to talk about his book, The Rise of the Agile Leader. Can you make the shift? Welcome, Chuck. Hi, Bill. Thank you. That was a very nice introduction. Appreciate that. And I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you. Now, when you were growing up, Chuck, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? My best friend growing up's father. He was a very humble person and actually started off as my baseball coach and introduced me to his oldest son. And we became best friends. In a lot of ways, he became a father figure for me. My father had passed away when I was a very young age. And so he just meant a great deal just because of the authenticity, his support, Sometimes it's tough love, but he was just a great influence to me growing up. What was his first name? I'm sure you knew him as Mr. when you were growing up. Yeah, he was definitely Mr. Frank. His first name was Frank. What did you call him when you were growing up? Oh, Mr. LeBate. That was his last name. And his son's also a Frank LeBate, the second. And to this day, he's still a very close, dear friend of mine. I actually went to his son's wedding just a few weeks ago on Long Island. Still very much in touch with his family. I feel they're really another part of my family. People who have that kind of influence on us, we can see that how that influence plays out in hindsight. As you look back and think about the tough love he gave, as well well as the support and encouragement. Can you remember an example of a time, maybe early in your career, when you were starting to lead other people, when something that you would have said changed because of his influence? Maybe you were able to hold your ground. Maybe you were more inclusive in bringing people along. Do you remember an example of that that came from your relationship with him? Fair question. I really can't correlate more than the fact that he simply was there for me when I needed him. And during some tough times growing up, especially when you're becoming a teenager and at that stage in life and you don't have a father figure. I think for me, if I was going to translate that into how that influenced me as a manager and as a leader, frankly, just being there for people and making sure they know that I'm there for them, I'm there to support them. Yes, I'm going to be honest. And sometimes I tell you something you don't want to hear, but I'm still going to be supportive. I'm still there to help them, not only as professionals, but as people. That's how I would translate that impact for me. Sort of that implicit presence that you're there to hold them accountable to be their best selves. And sometimes that means changing the direction they're going in. 
challenging their assumptions and holding them accountable for what they've committed to. Yeah, I agree with that. I think inherently, including when you think about the last couple of years, Bill, with COVID and the impact it's had and the virtual hybrid workforce and all the feedback about why people are actually leaving their jobs, it ultimately comes down to people want to feel valued and appreciated. They want to feel respected. They want to make sure that you care about them as a person, not just as a professional trying to do their job. I think that's more important than ever. So it's a really important perspective because everyone who's managing people these days is trying to decode what it means and how to operationalize that caring. Because obviously sending out an email, I care about each one of you to a group of 300, doesn't have the same impact and create that same sort of bond. What are some examples and also maybe some missteps you've seen leaders make that we could learn from? Well, step number one is what you just said, which is don't send out an email to 300 people or 1,000 or 100,000 people and tell you how much you care about them. As a leader, and depending on you know, scale is important here, the context of how many people you're talking about is very relevant. The answer is going to be a little different, but essentially, including if you've got 100,000 people in your organization, you've got to identify the people that you need to get to know, that you need to pay attention to, that you need to spend time with. So whether you've got a team of 10 or up to 100,000 plus, you've got to identify the people that you need to get to know. You need to establish trust. The only way you establish trust is by having open relationship, by getting to know them as people. The problem right now is that people are running from one virtual meeting to another or one plane flight to another, one client visit to another, or one fire to another. People need to go back, recalibrate and start understanding again what is success in terms of investing and in developing and mentoring and frankly, developing relationships with their key people. If you've got a small team, it should be everybody on your team and not just your key people. Key people, when you have a scaled team of, of hundreds or thousands, that's when you just can't do that with everybody. However, you still need to have a voice for your team, especially if you can't meet with every single person because your team is so large. So having town halls, having video interaction connections, where people can ask questions, rotating once a month a luncheon where one sits around and asks you Q&A to ask questions as part of your routine, as part of your schedule. There's ways to connect with people beyond an email. The email is probably the last thing you should do, especially if you're just trying to reinforce and update people on where we are as a business or what's changed our direction. So email should be used for factual purposes, providing information. It's not used for motivation or influence or relationships. So that's the parameter I would use. So there's many different ways of doing that. But as a leader, you have to develop relationships because without that, it's hard to really build not only trust, but it's hard to build a culture. Absolutely. One piece of advice that I've always followed is that really good leaders create strong teams, but great leaders create other leaders of strong teams. As we're thinking about how business leaders, and mostly small businesses, up to say 500 people, where you still have some layers, but people are saying, how do I create that within my organization? How do I create that sense of, I want you to follow up and be listening and build close relationships with your team in marketing and your team in operations and your team in customer service, the same way that I'm building relationships with you as the head of each of those departments. How have you seen people do that effectively in order to create a culture that says, we know that building relationships is a priority here because we actually have time on our calendars where we are building relationships. It's not just an afterthought. Absolutely. The key thing that you're talking about, especially for a small business owner or executive, is changing where you spend your time. Because your formula for success and building your business 
has worked to a T. And then when you start scaling and you get hit 50, and then you hit 100, then you hit 150 and so on, you need to change where you spend your time. And that's really hard because one, you probably have passion and expertise and are comfortable about where you spend your time. And most likely that's probably dealing with customers or going out there in the marketplace, running the operation or whatever it may be. But when you start to scale and become larger as an organization, you said a couple of really key things. How to make sure you surround yourself with the right level of talent. The key word is level because sometimes small business owners still want to be the experts, still want to be the top of the food chain. And the metaphor I would use with you, Bill, and I've used this before, and it's true for a small business owner, just as it's true for an executive in a company. You have to ship that no longer it's about you. It's like going from yourself to getting involved in a serious relationship or marriage or significant other. And all of a sudden you go from being the center of your own universe, now sharing that with somebody else. So you share the universe with somebody. Now, for any of you who have children, we all know what happens there. All of a sudden your children become the center of the universe It's no longer your universe, it's their universe. And you're there to help support their success. Guess what? Managing and leading people is very similar. They've got to become the center of your universe. And if you're scaling and you're growing as a small business, your job is to help make sure your people are successful and that you've got managers and leaders below you that are going to really run the day-to-day operation of your business. As an executive or as a small business owner, you've got to understand what's going to be successful where I spend my time. And that's going to be developing, mentoring your top talent in your organization and being externally focused. Too many small business owners or just like executives spend way too much time than day-to-day in the weeds. Now, I get it because in the day, it's your business and you helped it get to where it is. But how do you let go of that? How do you let go of not being involved in everything, not knowing everything that's going on day-to-day? That's a really hard shift, especially for a small business owner. In your book, Agile Leadership, you talk about five key drivers of growth, direction, integrity, innovation, engagement, and urgency. And Agile Leadership applies as much to a 20-person business as a 2,000-person business. When you are seeing a business and you've been brought in as a consultant to help them or a coach to help improve the way that they optimize their talent, what are the most telling symptoms in a business when one of these drivers is absent in a leader? Yeah, I appreciate highlighting that. I I think there's a lot of things you have to pay. We already talked about one of them, where you spend your time. I think most small business owners have a high sense of urgency. They're not afraid of making a decision. But the undercurrent of those principles that you've just mentioned is change. That's the biggest obstacle. It's the undercurrent of, can I adjust and adapt and not reinvent, but can I modify my formula for success? That's really, really hard for a small business owner. But for any small business owner that's listening, pay attention to why, not only why your competition, but why other organizations are not here anymore. Why have they failed? Because they were no longer relevant. They didn't adapt. Now, you can make an argument that if you're not in the technology space, maybe that, 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 that notion of change is not as relevant. But no, yes, your ability to execute and provide great products or services is really critical as a small business. We all know that. You're only good as what you're doing today. That's the adage I have my team, my organization, my people. We're only good as what we deliver today. However, you need to be thinking about the future. What is the future going to look like? And that goes back to my earlier comment. If you're too internally focused, if your comfort zone is to be involved in the day-to-day, then I have one important question for you. Then should you do that? Maybe make yourself a COO. 
Go out, hire somebody else to run your company and think about the future and drive the strategy and direction. Now, you and I already know the answer to that, which is a small business owner is not going to do that. But they have to make a choice. Do you want to operate as a COO and run your operation? Or do you want to operate as a person thinking about the future success of your business? And what is that going to look like strategically in terms of your business model, your products, and your services? So the notion of change is the undercurrent here that I would respond with. What's interesting is that I think someone who is the business leader, recognizing that they're not doing their job, but they're doing a COO's job, to really grapple with that and face it makes them a better leader for really doing it rather than just denying saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm good at doing both roles. To really go through and honestly assess which role you're doing and whether you can do a combination of them effectively or whether it's time to hire someone to do parts of those roles because you could create a new role for that. Let me jump into a different topic, which is related. Every one of us who's ever been responsible for P&L or deliverables of a business unit has confused hitting the numbers with being a good leader. What's your perspective on this issue? We know that it's a complicated balance, right? In one hand, it's hitting your metrics and hitting your numbers, but then you have to ask your question, how have you gotten to those numbers? How did you create your budget? Are you thinking too much short-term, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, recognizing the investment or change or recalibration you need to make for the future success of your business? Because sometimes, and I hate the cliche in one level, but sometimes you have to take a step backwards to take two or three steps forward. And that's where you've got to be somewhat comfortable with risk and making some changes. Now, the reality is a small business owner, most likely you've taken a lot of risk, but when you get to a certain size and you get certain, and your teeth get a little longer, all of a sudden the appetite for risk gets smaller and smaller, right? So you still have to remember what's the formula for success in addition to being externally focused and thinking about the future success. Yes, metrics are important, budgets are important, but knowing that the choices that people today have to work and where they can go and the amount of competition that you have and the fact they can go to almost any organization, whether it's a small business or larger company, you have to ask yourself a question, which is, what am I going to do? What kind of work environment do I want to create where people want to work here? And essentially is, do I understand what my culture is? And that your culture essentially is should be a reflection of your external brand. Like, why do you want to come here? Why do you want our services? Why do you want our products? And how do you make that reflective of your internal culture? Because you should create that same culture for your employees. Why would you want your employees to stay here? Why should they have a career here? Why should they grow with you? So your internal culture, your internal brand needs to be aligned in parallel with your external brand. So as a leader, as a manager, it's a huge part of your job. You talked about developing the next generation of leaders. That's a big part of your job. But not only that, and you're always better off growing your talent internally, um, always, especially as a small business. Now, you can't do that all the time. Sometimes it's important to bring in some external talent because they have a new lens. They need to bring some best practices. They bring a different perspective. That level of innovation, that level of sort of disruption can be really healthy, but you just can't do that all the time. There's many characteristics to take in consideration for that. Now, you have a personal experience with this. Right before you launched your company, you had your first 360-degree feedback session. And you, at first, didn't think that it was accurately representative of who you were as a leader. Can you talk about what that experience was like and how you came to reconcile that some of that feedback might have really had a bearing on the difference between you being someone who is a real hard worker, good achiever, versus being a good leader who could inspire people and cultivate the kind of culture we've just been talking about? Eight years before I started my firm, a couple of things happened. So I was running a global practice. We're not talking about thousands 
thousands and thousands of employees, but a decent sized employee population for a mid-sized consulting firm. And my CEO, who's also my mentor, was very fortunate to have that, called me in and said, look, I think you need to have a 360 course. I was so naive at the time saying, why? There was a reason why, because yeah. he thinks- At least you didn't have people. to ask what it was. You just yeah. asked why. <laughs> yeah, why? which was naive on my end. But so anyone who doesn't know what a 360 assessment is, you could do it either verbally or written. But in this case, it was a written online survey, ask a bunch of questions, you get rated, and then you would self-assess as well. And you compare your self-assessment to other people's feedback. And there's some also open comments and it's meant to be confidential and safe for people to do that. And the reason they call it a 360 because it's your boss, your peers, your subordinates, and other key stakeholders in the company giving you feedback. So you can get feedback from as many as 14, 20 people, which is what I did. Now, the good news, I got a lot of positive feedback, but I got some really tough feedback in 99 and stuff that would hurt. Anyone who's gotten, who's ever had a 360 assessment, it could be hard. It could be painful. I know I give them to a lot of executives and they're namely verbal. And I write the report, but they can still, and there's no ratings in those, but it could be hard. It's hard to read the comments. It's hard to see the ratings and the differences between the different groups. The difference that's the hardest is when you think that you're competent in an area and you hear from your subordinates, that's not the case, that they're always covering for you, that it takes them twice as long because you won't admit your mistakes. And that's a hard thing to have to reconcile and come to as a manager, especially one who's got some experience under their belt. Absolutely. I think that's definitely a factor when your self-assessment stronger than how other people perceive you. There's many potential reasons of why that's difficult, but it is difficult essentially because sometimes we're in denial. We don't have enough self-awareness. We don't understand how we're being, we have blind spots. There's many reasons why it could be hard to get 360 feedback on how we internalize. But my point is when I sat down with my boss, of course, I was so mature and I'm being facetious. And I said, well, screw all these people because look at my great results. And he laughed and said, look, Chuck, you're smart, you're hardworking, you get great results. I had the most profitable, largest practice of the whole company. But look, if you want to continue to develop in your career, if you want to be a CEO one day, you, know, you really need to understand the leadership part of your job. You get the management part of your job. The management part of the job essentially is our ability to manage the day-to-day, the execution, the operational part of our people and their role, responsibilities, and performance. The leadership part of the job essentially is the development, the motivation, the inspiration, the mentorship. And that's the part, frankly, I wasn't spending enough time doing. Once I got over myself, I started reflecting on what leadership meant for me. I started really investing in leadership development programs and other ways of really enhancing see my leadership effectiveness. And that became very transformational for me, Bill. That led to me not not even just starting my own business nine years later, but before that, two years after that, I became the CEO of the the firm. That would never have happened if I didn't have that 360 feedback. It, It took ownership of my development and really internalize the feedback to say, okay, what do I need to do to be perceived differently, frankly, be more effective in these areas? Naturally critical. Here are what I consider the two activities that are essential to growth. First of all is feedback. Were leaders open to receiving perspectives, course corrections, relationship stumbles? And then second is self-reflection, where you spend time dedicated to taking a candid self-assessment of how your intentions and actions and results all came together and where changes would be beneficial. Based on your experience as an executive and business leader, how does this statement capture the essence of leadership as you've observed it? And what would you add, Chuck? There's a couple of things that are really important when you're asking for feedback. One, you want to be specific. To go to somebody and say, hey, do you have any feedback for me? 99% of people are just going to stare at you and have no idea where you're coming from, okay? So don't be surprised if you do that and and you're wondering why you're getting that blank stare. Could you talk about a client you worked with? And let's talk about a specific example as to how someone developed 
and became better using these skills and looking at a particular area that they focused on because you can't get better at everything all at once. The client will just call him Mike and he was a classic. I'm in charge. This is my business. This is the way we're going to do it. We did a verbal 360 where I spoke. I interviewed all of his key stakeholders. I wrote the report, very confidential. And he wasn't surprised on one level, but he was very surprised on another by how strong people felt. They couldn't participate. They couldn't challenge. In his mind, he really felt like I was creating an environment. Chuck, if I'm asking people their opinion, they're not saying anything. That's not my fun life, is it? I said, that's the first clue that people don't feel comfortable sharing their opinion if they don't say anything, Mike. I had to really get him to shift his mindset to understand how he needed to approach working with people so that they would actually be comfortable giving him feedback without feeling they're going to get either persecuted or retaliated to. He has a strong personality. So he had to learn how to use different techniques and approaches so that people actually felt comfortable to challenge or question or give him feedback. From your perspective as an outside coach, what was the turning point? Was there a particular meeting? Was there a particular interaction he had with one of his direct reports that let you know he's going to open up and be a little bit less aggressive, and that's going to change the dynamic he has with his business relationships. Yeah, I mean, there, there's many pieces to it. The one example I can highlight is he had a shift from telling to asking. He had to start asking more questions. He had to start facilitating more dialogue. By the way, and here's the key thing for anyone's listening to this, it's not an overnight success story. You've got to demonstrate over a period of time in a consistent manner. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect because you're not, because behavior is hard to modify and change. They can demonstrate a new skill set, a new approach, a new mindset. And that takes time to demonstrate that. Why? Because people are skeptical. People are not sure if you're doing this because you're just trying to be nice. People are going to be skeptical and you need to take time to demonstrate that you can do this and that your heart's really into this. You're not doing this because you're being told or because you people think are feeling this way. You actually feel this is going to help you be more effective as a leader. That's really, really critical. There, but there's so many things that go into it, Bill. There's another thing I think it's really important to understand why asking for feedback is critical. I want people to hear this. And that's a couple of things. One, when you're asking people their opinion, you're telling them you value their opinion. You value what they have to say, especially if you're very sincere, authentic about it. When people feel they're valued and appreciated and that you actually want their opinion, again, that makes them feel they're valued. You're sending such an important message. The other message is, I know I've got things to develop. And when we're a small business owner, sometimes without even knowing it, we come across as a know-it-all. We come across, I have all the answers. And oh, by the way, even if I don't, it doesn't matter because I own this place or I run it. You're demonstrating that, look, I know I've got things I've got to work on. I know I'm not perfect. I've got an area to develop. So you're saying such two very powerful, important messages when you correctly, you're asking for feedback. Through your actions, not just your words, when they're in congruence with each other, it's so much more. Chuck, your company is certified as a predictive index partner. How has using this toolkit changed your perspective on leadership development and or alignment? I wish I had been exposed to PI many years ago. It would have saved me a lot of heartache. My forehead is actually pretty big, Bill. There's a reason for it because I've hit a lot of brick walls over the years. And it's expanded my forehead substantially. What I mean by that, and of course I'm joking, is that sometimes when you lead by your forehead, you learn the hard way through failure mistakes because you're a little thick-headed, you just don't get it. Where PI has been incredibly valuable to me and why we became a certified partner and use it in our business is because it is about understanding yourself. It's about having self-awareness about what your natural style as a leader, as a manager. Do you understand who you naturally are? And I'm not talking about your learned self. I'm talking about your natural self. And just as important, do you understand the natural styles and motivations and drives of your people? 
whether they're a management or not. The better you understand people and what motivates and drives them as well as who they are, and the more you understand your leadership style, there is the opportunity to say, what can I do to adjust my style to be effective? Because very often we ask the question, what's the secret sauce for being an effective leader? Can I adapt my style depending who my audience is? Do I understand what motivates and drives them? How can I get to them to make sure they feel not only appreciated and valued, but motivated to do what they needed to be successful. PI is, again, capturing that insight to motivation and drive and behavior. And it measures really critical things. How do I deal naturally with conflict? How do I naturally deal with change and risk? What's my natural decision-making style? What's my natural communication style? Critical things to know, not only as a leader, but frankly, any employee. One topic that is on everyone's minds these days is the work from home and return to work dilemma, where people are trying to develop policy and practices that bring people together and do it in a way that is optimal for everyone involved. There's so many different points of view, so many different stakeholders. Has PI helped provide some sort of objective index that people could say, here are the activities that we work on together best when we're in a group. Other times, we've got to learn to be a little bit more trusting, perhaps, to let people get their work done where it suits them best. Yeah, I think whether you're virtual, you're hybrid, you're in office, the more you can understand who a person is, what's risk to them, how they deal with change, how they naturally deal with conflict. And I'm going to use a very specific example. If you're what we call a strong personality, but if you're a person that's more assertive, strong opinions, you're strong at asserting those opinions, you look at this conflict at as a healthy debate, a healthy discussion. That's pretty typical. By the way, I'm one of those people, so I know. And that's measurable, right? Now, the opposite of that, which is also measurable, are people who are more about harmony. They're more about collaboration. A healthy debate is something that's healthy. What you look at as a healthy debate, they look at as a terrifying ordeal. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. They look at it as conflict. And guess what? They don't enjoy that kind of conflict. They rather avoid that conversation because the last thing you want to do is butt heads or disagree because they're going to feel like you're going to be all over them. So understanding the difference of that, no matter what your work environment, it's so critical because an example would be you get a bunch of people, strong opinions and very assertive. They're going to debate an issue and everyone else is going to be quiet. That's the opposite of that. They're going to end the meeting thinking everyone's alignment, everyone's in agreement. And the answer is no. The people who are the opposite personality are going to start venting about why they disagree with that decision or that direction after the meeting. Of course, the assertive people or manager are going to find out and scratch their head or even get really frustrated and say, you had an opportunity to talk about in the meeting. Why didn't you do that? They didn't do that because you didn't create an environment where it was comfortable for them to do that. That's a really good example of understanding the differences of personality, what motivates and drives us, and how we respond in certain situations. That's why we need to understand how people are going to respond in this situation and are we going to create an environment that's going to be adaptable enough where people are going to feel comfortable? So true and so important. Chuck, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Sure, I'm ready, Bill. Hit me. All right. We talked about at the beginning of the interview, someone who influenced or inspired you and you talked about Frank. When you were a teenager, Chuck, what's a song that you love? Oh, boy. I liked a lot. I mean, I date myself. There's a song by a group called Yes, called Close to the Edge. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? I haven't really purchased anything for myself. I have to would say would be probably a meal because unfortunately, as we know, going out to dinner these days is not cheap. If it's the last six months, boy, my top three would be one of my four kids then probably someone on my team and then an important client or friend. I think, again, you know, the theme here is take the time to meet with people, whether it's a meal or even just reaching out. That's not a work-related meeting, including when 
when we work virtually or a hybrid, which is we need to continue to make sure we let people know we value them, we appreciate them, and we connect with them as people. We connect them on a very personal level. One of the things that you talk about very strongly in your book is self-fulfilling prophecy. What's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you extol for your team or your clients? Wow, you're hitting me some good questions here today, Bill. Uh, self-fulfilling prophecy can mean a lot of different things, but to your question, I think self-fulfilling prophecy is not to be worried about something you can't control, worry about an outcome, worried about a response, worried about something that, frankly, we have no impact or influence on. That's what a lot of self-fulfilling prophecy, because once you start worrying about something, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So focus on what you can focus on in terms of the impact we can have, how we can understand the need, how we can help. That should hopefully influence an outcome, but don't worry about things that we can't control or influence. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? It's something that you've eliminated, taken out of your life for your routines that you've found has been very beneficial. To be very transparent, COVID impacted me. It's been a tough two years. And even my business was hurt dramatically in 2020 for a good seven, eight months until we really recovered very positively in August of 2020. But between March and 2020 was terrible. But something, frankly, I started doing in the beginning, really at the end of last year, that I literally had this conversation with a good friend of mine recently, which is when you reflect at the end of the day, what are the three to five things that you're really grateful about in your life? how you start your day. What are the things that really are going to be exciting for you? What are the things that you really want to accomplish for you that's going to help your development and the influence and impact you want to make around the people around you? That was a habit I had started years ago, but it does a couple of things. that It puts you in the right mindset to not only reflect at the end of the day and remind ourselves how much we have to be grateful about in our lives, because sometimes we forget about that. In the beginning of the day, it's all about what's the impact you want to make that day? I don't care what you do for a living. What's the impact you want to make? Who do you want to influence? How are you going to demonstrate gratitude and appreciation to someone in your life? Those are two things I brought back almost a year ago. Fabulous. Chuck, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? Thanks, Bill. This has been great, by the way. You're very good at interviewing. They can find my LinkedIn profile, which is uh, Chuck Moeller, and it's M-O-L-L-O-R. Chuck, we're going to link to your LinkedIn profile, your other social media, as well as your main website and places to buy your book so that people can find you easily and keep up with what's going on in your life. Chuck Moeller, author of The Rise of the Agile Leader, Can You Make the Shift? Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.